Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong. And I'm Jesse Chizeski Kay. Susan and I are two statisticians in academia, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We'll touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. In this episode, we talk about how a Google phone is able to detect and recognize songs you're listening to in real time without even being connected to the internet. And then we talk about Americans' perception of AI. Let's get started. So Jesse, my husband Shay and I were in Iceland for spring break in March, and that partly explains our database hiatus here. When traveling abroad to other countries, we don't typically do the smart thing where you buy a local SIM card so that you can still have access to calling or internet. But maybe not getting the local SIM card is a smart thing to do and just having a little break at least from technology. That is true. But then you're also just like, there is a bit of that shock where you realize you're suddenly disconnected from everything. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. (laughs) So we were super surprised because we were um, sitting down to have dinner at a restaurant in Iceland. Um, There was some pop music playing and we just looked down at our phones to check the time. and, And we saw that despite not having any internet access, our phone said, now playing. And there it was the name of the artist and title of the currently playing track. That sounds a little creepy. I guess it means your phone is always listening. Yep. The Google Pixel phones have this feature. Um, It's actually called Now Playing, and it listens to the ambient sound, and it tells you what song is currently playing automatically without your prompting it to do so. And it just surprises me that this works offline even when you're not connected to the internet. Yeah, wow. So was the song an Icelandic song? No, that probably would have made it even more impressive, but actually it was an American pop song. Um, But, you know, I listen to a fair amount of radio in the United States, and I can safely say it isn't just one of those top radio hits that I hear. So this might have been like from the 70s or 60s or something, and I'm pretty sure that my phone doesn't have a database full of music from the 60s or 70s, and just not being connected to the internet means that my phone isn't able to actively ping some server to query results. Yeah, that's interesting. So any, any idea how this could have worked? So I did some Googling. because it is a Google phone. No, well, I did find several articles on this topic. Basically, my phone has a database relating to 17,000 or so uh, songs that it could potentially recognize. And this database gets updated from time to time, and it certainly might vary by the location of where I currently am. That sounds like a lot of data um, just to enable this one feature. Yeah, right. And it's actually a feature I don't use very often. Um, But it turns out Google does this fancy thing where it uses embeddings to represent the songs. So even though it's about 17,000 or so songs, it only takes up 50 megabytes of space on my phone. Oh, wow. Okay. So um, maybe we should talk about embeddings then. Yeah, definitely. So in short, embeddings are a way in which a data set can be projected into a different space where certain properties can be represented by um, some distance metric. So there's a lot of use cases when it comes to language modeling. For example, one of the most famous embedding approaches is called Word2Vec. This is actually patented by Google. Um, And this is relatively 
easy to understand. So we'll say a little bit about this rather than talking about how the embedding for the music uh, works. Uh, essentially, word to vec like other word embedding approaches, projects words um, into Euclidean space, such that distances between the projected words in that space reflect the uh, semantic similarity between them. And then because the words get numerically represented in this, in this projected space, you can actually mathematically operate on these words. Uh, can we give a few concrete examples? For sure. So, for example, you can take the vector representation for the word king, subtract the vector for man, add the vector for woman, and you get the word queen. Or even with proper nouns, this works as well. So you could take the vector for USA minus the vector for Washington, D.C., add the vector for Beijing, and you get the vector for China. So effectively, Word2Vec allows us to represent discrete variables like words as these low-dimensional continuous vectors. So it sounds like a pretty nice tool to help you with the analogies section on the SATs. Uh, so if that's still a thing. Yeah, if that, I don't, yeah, I don't even know. I, I mean, it's definitely changed since I took the SAT a long time ago. Um, but uh, so, so how does this word to vec actually work? So to start out, word to vec uses a neural network to arrive at the uh, vector representations of words. And, and whenever we talk about a neural network, I, I know we do a lot, you should just imagine a multi-layer cake. So there's the input layer, which might be the icing on top. That's your raw input data. And then there's the output layer, which might be the bottommost layer. So I guess the base of the cake. That's usually the thing you want to predict. And then you can have a number of layers in the middle. That sounds really delicious. Uh, <laughs> food analogies are a favorite here on our podcast. Yes, that's why we're always hungry when we wrap <laughs> up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so word to vec um, luckily has just one layer in the middle sandwiched between the icing and the base. It's not really what you would call a deep neural network. The icing consists of the raw text chopped up into words and then encoded into a vector of zeros and ones. So these are going to be large vectors because if your text input data is, say, like a novel, the length of the vector is the total number of distinct words, so maybe you know, 10,000 in length, that appears in the novel. And it's, um, it's mostly zeros everywhere except for a one in a single position. Yeah, this is your classic dummy variable encoding, um, which actually in machine learning, they call it one-hot encoding. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's our input data. And then the output layer consists of such one-hot hot encoded vectors as well. Um, and the way that this works for, say, the continuous bag of words, it's one of the two variants of Word2Vec. We use this neural network to essentially predict each word using a sliding window of surrounding words. So just as an example, if you have a sentence in your text that says, have a great day, um, you might use the encoded vector for great to predict the encoded vector for day and the encoded vector for, for, for A. So those are just the two adjoining words, right? Between great, it's kind of like sandwiched between A and day, and you would want to be able to predict um, the, the surrounding words. So the idea here is to predict the word given the context. And um, obviously with a simple sentence like have a great day, it's not really interesting. But if you imagine you have a really large body of text, say all of Wikipedia, and you chop it up into individual uh, words and you push it through this 
um, word to vec model, you can actually build a pretty sophisticated neural network model. Hmm, that's interesting. So, so then what's happening in this middle layer? Good question. So this middle layer, technically called the hidden layer because you don't see it, um, this is really where the magic happens. This hidden layer behaves like a control room that figures out how to combine those big long vectors in the input layer by applying certain weights to then predict the vectors in the output layer. So training the neural network really just involves tuning these weights in the middle layer to do a better job in prediction. And then these weights, when the model is fully trained, give us the final numeric vectors that are used to represent the original text data, I'm assuming? Yeah, that's exactly right. So this is different from your typical supervised prediction problem, right? We're not actually trying to generate sentences, even though the neural network sounds like it's structured in that way. What we're really interested in are these weights that are hidden in the very middle. And, and once you have those weights, you can simply... Um, apply them to the input vectors to arrive at our new transform feature vectors in the Euclidean space. And they're typically going to be smaller. So instead of representing each word using something like a length 10,000 vector of zeros and ones, the embedding outputs vectors, it might be only like 500 or 1,000 in length, but every element will probably be a, a real number. Uh and, um, and then we can subtract and add vectors in ways that are semantically meaningful. So, for example, words that are similar in meaning are, are close in distance in this space. Yep. So at a high level, just to summarize, there are just a couple of things that are really nice about embeddings. First of all, embeddings reduce the dimensionality of the data, um, similar to what something like principal components analysis or PCA might yeah, so PCA is a method for reducing the dimensionality of a data set consisting of numeric variables, and it does it by projecting the data in directions that maximize the amount of variability represented. So um, think of it like data compression by throwing out redundant information. That's exactly right. And the second thing that's nice about um, embeddings is that in this particular projection, so not like PCA, in this particular kind of projection that we get with embeddings, the distances between individual observations retain their meaning in that projected space. So this can be useful for, say, finding words that are related, or if you're doing song embeddings, finding the most probable song given a compressed representation of an audio track so that we can provide a song title. Ah, okay, now we're making the connection. Yeah, and so Google Song Embedding is a bit more complicated than that, but at least in spirit it is similar in those ways. So Jesse, have you ever been in a situation where you might have benefited from a feature like this? Yeah, I suppose just, you know, like listening to a song in the car and wanting to remember who, um, what the song name is or who the artist is, like, right? It could kind of yeah. make that sort of connection. Um, yeah, definitely. And I, and I think this used to be more of a problem back in the day before our car radios have these LED displays that kind of show what's currently playing. I just remember way back, I would use apps like Shazam on my phone to listen to a song from the radio and, and ping the online servers and then return to me the song title. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so, so did it work well? 
For the most part, yes, but unlike now playing, Shazam was really sensitive to the ambient noise. So if you're in a car with three other people and you really want to figure out what's currently playing, you have to tell them to shush for 10 seconds just for Shazam to listen. If there's too much ambient noise, it just wouldn't work. Oh, interesting. Was 10 seconds kind of like the the magic number or would it sometimes, depending on the song, require more or fewer seconds? Yeah, I think think this is all getting a little foggy in my memory now but i think that it would start searching once it started recording and sometimes it'll give you a result sooner when it found a match Um, and sometimes it would require a little bit more data so you're waiting for longer before it gives you a result that has achieved some given level of confidence okay interesting very nice very nice feature it's a lot easier now though if you have a google phone (laughs) (laughs) without even trying you'll let you know yeah Great, thank you. We've talked about a number of useful AI innovations with potential for medical research and practice, uh, writing our emails or texts for us, telling us about the songs that are playing, but we've also expressed some concerns. For example, with the, the deep fakes that can generate human images or videos and audio, Um, So in a study released earlier this year from the Center for the Governance of AI, Future of Humanity Institute at the University of Oxford, um, it was carried out by Baobao Zhang and Alan Defoe, Um, they developed a survey to assess American attitudes toward AI. They surveyed 2,000 U.S. adults, so that's um, those over 18, between June 6th and 14th of 2018. It's great that they're trying to measure this, but do you think the results will change anything about how AI research moves forward? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, it could potentially impact things like um, policy level decisions. Um, for example, maybe some things related to privacy laws um, could potentially be impacted. Hmm. Okay, so what do they find? Yeah, so um, just a couple other points about the survey sample. Um, it was just it was designed to be representative of the U.S. population based on things like gender, age, race, and education. Uh, they measured a bunch of different characteristics, and um, here we just want to focus on one, which is the general attitude toward AI. Um, so all the survey respondents were given the following blurb about AI. Um, so the quote is: "Artificial intelligence, AI." refers to computer systems that perform tasks or make decisions that usually require human intelligence. AI can perform these tasks or make these decisions without explicit human instruction. Today, AI has been used in the following applications. I'm just going to end the quote there and say they would select then five um, randomly selected applications among a list of 14. And these applications were things like translation, um, image classification, and disease diagnosis. (laughs) I think it's good that they try to define uh, artificial intelligence as a term. As pervasive as this is, I don't think there's a commonly agreed upon definition. Yeah, exactly. And so then at least the um, survey respondents are using um, kind of an agreed upon or, you know, the, the same definition. Yep, exactly. So, um, so after given the kind of blurb above about um, AI, they were then asked how much they support or oppose AI development. And so just to um, give some uh, quick summary of some of these results, um, 13% strongly support AI, um, 28% somewhat support it, 
9% though strongly oppose it and 13% somewhat oppose it. And then there's the rest are, are neutral or either or could have not responded. So there's um, generally more support for AI than who um, oppose it. They also broke this down by different demographic groups and um, it turned out that a higher percentage of men support AI over women, um, younger people over the older, more educated support um, AI over the less educated, and wealthier people um, support it more than low income people. I suppose these results aren't terribly surprising. I mean, like, for example, with more men supporting AI over women, it's probably because there's more men in the tech sector than there are women. Yeah, exactly. I, I did not find um, these results surprising, um, surprising either. Yeah. It, it, if one had to guess, you might have supposed that as well. Like in younger people over older, they're probably you know more exposed to the different technologies that use AI and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah. So okay. So that was um, one one point that they were um, interested in um, in assessing. They also asked the participants to respond to this um, this statement. Robots and artificial intelligence are technologies that require careful management. Okay, and end the statement. And so it turned out that 82% tend to agree or totally agree with this. And there were only 6% who tend to disagree or totally disagree. Uh, and then there are some that, that hadn't responded or said that they didn't know. And um, they actually compared this to a similar EU survey where 88% agreed with the statement. So there's some consistency there. Yeah, I mean, I guess we don't want the robots to con to be let loose on us. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so overall, I mean, there's, you know, of course, a lot more details, but I found the survey to be quite interesting and useful just for getting a snapshot of American attitudes toward AI. Uh, though we've discussed concerns with AI being within the general community, it can be easy to get absorbed in the idea that progress and development is better. Yeah, taking a step back to consider the consequences of the development is important. Yeah, and then uh, just one final result of the survey that I, I found funny. Uh, they, they were also asked about the types of organizations that the survey respondents had the most trust in for developing AI. So the list included organizations like the FBI, CIA, tech companies in general, and then some specific tech companies like uh, you know, Microsoft, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. Um, they also included university researchers. Well, they had the, uh, the least confidence in Facebook and it was funny because, I mean, if you look at the results, uh, Facebook was definitely the clear bottom. Um, a number of the other organizations had pretty, pretty comparable results, but Facebook uh, was, was definitely separated from the pack. Yeah, Facebook has been having kind of a bad run. I guess it's not too surprising given some of the issues that Facebook has been facing, such as the Cambridge Analytica data breach. Yeah, um, they, they actually had a footnote about that in the Facebook results. So they noted that the survey was, um, it was shortly after Mark Zuckerberg testified before Congress about that. Um, but they had also said that they conducted a similar, um, they conducted a pilot survey with a similar result a, a year before that. So it was before the, the case even came out. <laughs> and what do they think of university researchers? Actually, university researchers were among the groups they had the most confidence in. Yay! <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, really, the other tech companies and tech companies in general tended to also have positive responses as well. So well, we'll have to see what happens, how attitudes evolve over the coming years, though. I'll bet it's because we're not trying to make money with AI, <laughs> as all these companies are. <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, the, then the uh, the university researchers were were quite similar to the the other tech companies, and and actually even the government agencies. But, but oh, yeah, okay. I, I can see how um, how there could be change, different attitudes towards these, you know, based on what people perceive their incentives to be. But you know, maybe the the tech companies have more incentive to um, kind of be protective. You know, like well, one would hope um, they'd care more about kind of privacy issues because as soon as there's a breach. Let's see, you know, Facebook has had those issues, and yeah, once they have a breach, then sort of they lose their credibility altogether for a yeah. long period of time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But anyway, I thought uh, I hopefully they they do this survey again, so we can really keep track over the coming years about how things change. Yeah, and by then we might have an even more updated version of the definition of AI. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Databytes. If you have any questions or suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. That's Databytes with a Y. And if you want to see the numerous articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.